0: I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slowburn.
1: It's called Proposition Six, the Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California.
2: With so much at stake, young people became activists.
0: We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slowburn, Season Nine Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen.
2: This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, listen, I have a confession to make. I love the song, We Are the World. I know it's corny. I know it's not cool to like it. But I just, I love the idea of all these stars in one room. Today on the podcast, you'll hear about a new documentary about one of the greatest recording sessions of all time. I'm Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. 39 years ago last night, America's biggest pop stars convened in one Hollywood studio, and then they came out with this. I get it. I get get that I'm not supposed to like this song, but I don't have that in me. I don't have the muscle that goes, no, this is too corny, you should hate this. I don't have that. There's arguably no song that better captures the 80s than We Are the World. It's this all-star charity. Come on. This is Bob Dylan we're talking about. This is an all-star charity single recorded in 1985. To assist famine relief in Africa. But here's the thing. How it all came together, this historic recording of the song is now detailed in a brand new Netflix documentary that comes out today. It's called The Greatest Night in Pop. Mora Donston and Garvia Bailey have seen the movie. They're here to tell us what they learned and what's missing. Mora Garvia, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks. You know, you know what I enjoyed is you guys singing along as that clip played. I like I noticed that <laughs> like, yeah, the vibe immediately happened. I get it. Uh, we Are the World, I think we should contextualize, came on the heels of the British all-star charity, which is Do They Know It's Christmas? And then later on, Canada got into the game with Tears Are Not Enough. People don't, I think, talk about that song enough. That's like Brian Adams, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Anne Murray, Getty Lee, you know? And then we get into this massive Live Aid concert in July of 1985 – Garvia, could we just start talking about how African famine relief became, like, the go-to cause for celebrities in the 1980s? How did that happen?
0: Um, Well, there was a lot of kind of cause um, music being made at the time. So, Hmm. okay, so first of all, there's no doubt that geopolitically, there's this massive famine in the 80s, catastrophic. um, And it had been going on for actually quite quite a while before We Are the World came Came to be, so uh, it raged to the point where it could not be ignored by the American public writ large. Hmm. So, in the in the pop music world, an industry was kind of you know, in the early 70s, the industry was kind of teetering on the brink of collapse in pop music. You know, mm. disco had exploded, was over, all of that stuff was happening. But then there was this massive influx of incredible musicians. We had Michael Jackson coming out and Lionel Richie and Bruce Springsteen. Everyone was like flying super high. Yeah. Um. And so there was just like this attitude that music had been saved, that people were interested in music again. Yeah. And so why not bring all all of these things together. I mean, the hippies had Dylan and they had Vietnam to rally around, right? Um, The civil rights movement had jazz and soul music. They rallied around that. And I kind of feel like the musicians were like, well, what do we, like, we should do something. (laughs) What are we about? What's our thing? It was too early for AIDS to be a thing that people actually wanted to talk about Mm. in America. So this was a amazing rallying cry so it made sense for something like this to come up out of that when that much star. and plus the Americans did not want to see the British doing something so super cool <laughs> and not get in on that. Like, they're like, Very what true. about us? So uh, well, the altruism that, 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 wanted to, that they wanted to feel was right there for them. So there it was.
2: I'll tell you, they sure also gave us the cultural idea that for some people that Africa is just one thing. we got to come back to yeah. that later. But uh, yes, let's, let's get into this documentary. OK, so as I mentioned, We Are the World was recorded exactly. 39 years ago last night. Today, we have this Netflix documentary. Let's hear a bit of the show. I'm at the house with Michael writing the song. He hums every part. Tapes and tapes of just layered and layered of him humming. There was tremendous pressure. Stevie wouldn't call me back. And the recording was in a couple of days. We now have a template with mumbles and no words. What do we want to do? We're talking to the world. So we have to talk this out. A tape with mumbles and no words. I mean, Maura, the movie is kind of set up at the start a little bit like a heist movie. Like, are they going to be able to pull this off? He sort of plays off this drama, right? Like, there's a mystery. Will it actually come together? Is that device effective at all for you, knowing that the song came out, that it became one of the biggest songs of all time?
3: Well, as someone who works often on Deadline, it obviously struck a chord with me personally. (laughs) But, you know, I really did like, I mean, obviously we know the song came together. We've all been swaying to it on the Zoom. But, you know, the way that which it shows like how logistically they had to sort of get everybody together to get into the same room. Stevie Wonder was in Philly. Bruce was in Buffalo. And, oh, it's January and the weather is terrible. Dion was in Vegas. And so – You know, seeing how that tableau that was so, you know, all over MTV came together was, I thought, really interesting and sort of how, you know, the pressure was on and they only had X number of hours to finish things. Like those shots of the digital clock during uh, Springsteen (laughs) and
2: Dillon's
3: parts, you know, yeah.
2: Uh, Garvey, what about you? What about what parts of this documentary drew you in and you went like, whoa, this is a mystery. How are they going to do this?
0: (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, we all love the behind-the-scenes, like behind-the-music documentaries, mm-hmm. and this is like the ultimate behind-the-music music documentary. <laughs> and so, the yes. build-up, as you know, the, those scenes of them like driving it in, in their different cars. The you know, Bruce Springsteen came in on a motorcycle, and Kim Curren <laughs> came in on a, like all of those parts of it. I yeah. was digging all of that because I love all of those kind of things, but. Also, you know, being a kid, kind of of the '80s that loved this stuff, yeah, this thing was mass. Like, there was nothing like this. So, all my nostalgic kind of buttons were pressed yeah. very much by seeing Cyndi Lauper and seeing even, even. Drunky Al Jarreau. I was like into that. <laughs> like I was like, this is all great. Kenny Loggins, give me more. Like I, it was kind of wild to see all of these stars that I remember being just so massive, yeah. nervous and weird. And in a sweaty room, and interacting with each other in a weird way, and Bob Dylan. Yeah, they're not normal when they're hanging
2: out with each other, right? Like because we don't know, we see them at like an award shows, and that's like its own contrivance. But they are not when they're just like in a recording studio, and there's a bunch of cameras around. Like no one is really behaving in a normal way, you know. And then there's and and and. You and I both eat this up, like this idea of like, oh, we're getting this intimate look behind the scenes. What happens when this person walks into the studio and everyone is like, hey, that's this is this giant star that we all know. Yeah. Uh, More for you. What was the biggest revelation watching this movie?
3: Well, I, I, on that point, I loved how Cindy Lauper was like, I knew Billy Joel, so I made a beeline for him. It's like, yeah, New York stick together. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I love It's like going the to a part. party, right? Yeah. It's like going and to a party. Like, I'm
0: going to go towards the person, person I know. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Totally. Um, but I did also love just like the parts about the songwriting and yeah. how the vocal arranger came in and was so thoughtful about like which voices went where. Because this was like, you know, we've been saying this was a huge collection of biggest stars, but also really powerful, recognizable voices. And so how do you puzzle them out and fit them all together? And I really liked how deliberate and thoughtful that process was, you know, exposed as Mm -hmm.
2: being. So back in 2010, Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie tried to make the magic happen again. It was for the 25th anniversary of We Are the World. And they cut this new version. They cut the new version of the song with a brand new cast of musicians. And it was meant to be a benefit for earthquake victims in Haiti. This is how it turned out. There comes a time when
0: we heed a certain call When the world must
3: come together as one There are
0: people dying Oh, when it's time
2: Oh my God, Justin Bieber needed the help. I'm not going to lie to you. 15-year-old Justin Bieber getting a bit of help from Nicole Scherzinger, Jennifer Hudson on We Are The World 25 for Haiti. Garvey, let's be honest. No one remembers that version particularly fondly, you know, as the original. you're not, I don't think you're going to see a documentary about that version anytime soon. No. Uh, I think before doing this group, chat, I forgot that that version even existed, to be honest with you. Why do you think the all-star charity single doesn't connect so much in this day and age?
0: Oh, you know what? I don't think that stars really need to show their philanthropic bona fides these days, like the way that – you know, in the 80s, no one had, no one had the, you know, that connection to their fans that they do now. So for pop stars and for us as a public, it's like, I know enough about you. I don't need to see Justin Bieber in a room with, you know, whoever, the Spice Girl. I don't even know who was there. Whoever was there. <laughs> um there was a lot of them too. There was like 85 people and there were like a lot of has-beens and D-list folks that, that were in that room for that. So it was a bit, to me, it felt like a, a it felt like something that wasn't needed at that time. Yeah. If I need to give to Haiti. I know how to get to give give to Haiti when this came out. I know exactly what I need. I don't need to be led by my nose as a fan by like this this grouping yeah um like uh, as a fan i can just hop on twitter i can hop on ig and i know how justin bieber is feeling about this or i know how you know what i mean like i don't need this this so um i know where my money needed to go i didn't need to hear that to to have that be and The slapdash nature of the thing that happened in the 80s, that is one particular magical moment. Yeah. This felt like such a contrived, like we're so, our noses are so hip to anything that's contrived and non-authentic. Agreed. And I think that that's part of it,
2: you know. So, Maura, what about you? Where, where, Where are you at on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think Garvey makes a lot of good points. I also, you know, this wasn't the first attempt to sort of rekindle the We Are the World flame. There were the covers of what's going on in the early 2000s that were, I think, in response to 9-11 and obviously all the telethons. And I feel like also, you know, there's so much more knowledge now just as a base about how many problems there are out there that everybody kind of has their own thing that they really are passionate about also i felt like you know you were talking about the lineup of that we are the world and it reading it it really did feel like a sort of exercise in corporate synergy so maybe like (laughs) instead of the quincy jones check your egos at the door sign it should be check your corporate goals for q4 or whatever at the goal at the door
2: so let's just get back to this documentary let's get back to um the greatest night in pop when you see this film and its treatment of 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 we are the world and this moment, do you think that Garvia? Maybe this question is do you do you think this film fell short anywhere?
0: You know, I think that there's always the opportunity to talk a little bit deeper about why we're here. Like I'm a big like why are we here kind of person, and yeah. um, and it, true to that, I love pop stars just because they're pop stars yeah. I also if we have the opportunity to hear a little bit more about where their heart is where their philanthropic heart is what yeah. they were thinking about Ethiopia at the time how this connected to the work that they've continued to do maybe I would have you know maybe I would have dug that a little bit more but to be honest like it is what it is like this is the the this was a a stroke of an ego putting this sure. documentary together it was nothing more than that let's reclaim some of the glory of what this thing was and <laughs> like if it's not an ego boost i don't know what it is so i'm very aware that that's that's what this is and it and it, it shouldn't be or couldn't be more than that Do you know what i mean like i, I, like, I think if we still... got deeper Into geopolitics or whatever, I think we'd be going off on a on a tangent that maybe I don't want to hear Cindy Lauper talk about the (laughs) geopolitics of (laughs) Ethiopia and communism and whatever. You know, like I don't, I don't know if I need that.
2: Uh, Regrettably, as much as that is entirely true, it also scratches an itch for me, which is just watching these people who are incredibly famous, who I've had a long relationship with for a long time, um, talk Mm -hmm. in a vulnerable way and tell these stories. We were talking earlier about the the Bruce Springsteen talking about talking to Bob Dylan. um, And you go like, yeah, that's... That's the stuff I want to know. I want to know what that relationship is like. Uh, Mora Garvia, we got to leave it there. But thank you so much for your time. I'm going to go listen to We Are the World in a minute, but I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having
2: us. Of course. Bye. Maura Johnston is a music journalist in Boston. And Garvia Bailey is a co-founder of Media Girlfriend, Girlfriends. She's based in Toronto. You can watch The Greatest Night in Pop right now on Netflix.
3: Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.
2: My name is Alamine Abdul-Mahmoud and you are listening to Commotion. Listen, before we get into the next segment... This is me giving you a heads up, okay? We are going to head into some adult conversation here. So if you're a PG-rated kind of person, or your kids are in the room, or you are, your kids are in the car, you may want to hit the mute button, you know, just, uh, it's, it's going to get a little adult, because there's just no way of sanitizing something like this.
1: I am going to talk about the blowjob quite a bit tonight. <laughs> to the point of tedium, said one early critic. <laughs> I do it in a way that allows us all to maintain our dignity. Uh, If you're here with a parent or a sibling, it will be okay. I'm very concerned with dignity. I'm someone that, for example, prefers to call doggy style the hound's way.
2: (laughs) That is Jacqueline Novak's new Netflix special. It's called Get On Your Knees. It's based on her off-Broadway show of the same name, And just as she just said, this is a 90-minute comedy set entirely focused on one subject, and that is oral sex. Carrie Batten recently profiled Jacqueline for The New Yorker, and we talked about how there's a lot more to this show than the X-rated premise suggests. So I started out by asking Carrie about the very first time that she saw Get On Your Knees.
1: To be honest, I had no idea what to expect going in when I first saw it in 2019. A friend of mine, you know, just said, "Hey, do I have an extra ticket to Jackal Novak? Do you want to go?" And I was like, "Sure." Um, And on paper, I don't know how how you feel about these sorts of descriptions, but like a one woman show about oral sex to me that, that doesn't seem like something I'd be that interested in. Um, It seems like it could be really cringy. Yes. Um, And yet, so to see the the show, I think I had the experience that a lot of people have, which is just like blown away with what she was able to do with that framework. Um, And to see how, Clearly, I think Natasha Leone described the show as a Swiss clock, and it really is um, to see how tidily and brilliantly she she is able to use use the the blowjob to riff on any number of things Mm -hmm. about life um it's like it's a mind-blowing experience it it was it was like a revelatory mind-blowing experience to see it for the first time
2: uh you get the elevator pitch is the thing that we said right like this is a 90 minute show about oral sex but what is it really about what is this what is this special actually trying to communicate to us what are the sort of themes and ideas that she, she does get to by focusing on this just one subject
1: well it's funny because after after several years of interviewing her and spending time with her like I think the question she would least like to answer in the world is like what is something about because <laughs> she she like circles topics and just over and over again um and she she has this whole thing about kind of like refusing to commit to one definition or an uh, or an idea of something yeah. but um I would say in the in the show she it's about how, like, inherently embarrassing it is to be a human being. <laughs> and <laughs> she said her first – legend has it that her first word as a, as a child was embarrassing. Um, <laughs> um, but it's also about how you can triumph over those embarrassments by, like, creating these frameworks for life in your own mind and, um, you know, these own codes for yourself um, as, you, as you grow up and become an adult.
2: Mm -hmm. um yeah now we get to this version of uh get on your knees on netflix and for those people who are just seeing it for the first time one thing that stands out is her appearance right like you normally see for a lot of these big stand-up specials the comedians will be all decked out in their best outfit jacqueline is like in a t-shirt ripped jeans looking like she just got up from a nap and that feels like an incredibly sort of deliberate presentation and style choice what do you make of the presentation
1: I think it's, it it is very deliberate. And, um, you know, the show is about sex and she chose, she chooses to present herself in a way that is sort of desexualized so that you're really living, you're not. She's not doing any of this vampy, sort of like raunchy female comic yeah. stuff. Um, or you know, she's not dolled up. She is really forcing the audience to live in her, her telling of her own sexuality as opposed to the like physical representation of it.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to play another clip from the show. This is Jacqueline describing the moment when she was about to perform oral sex on her boyfriend for the very first time, but backing out in the last moment.
1: I see no way through, and so I don't know what to do, so I just start backing my way. You know, just back up the torso, as humbly and feebly as I had gone. And I, I get back to the face, and I was like, I want to do something. I mean, so I take a deep breath... And relax, because that's the thing. You relax, and the answer's supposed to appear. And for once, it did. My virginity, I gave it to him.
2: (laughs) So this is a show where Jacqueline talks about the embarrassing, at times, uncomfortable aspects of being intimate with a partner, maybe doing things for them that you don't really want to do or you're not really sure that you want to do. But Jacqueline has said that she doesn't want audiences to view the show through a Me Too lens. Why is that distinction important to her, do you think?
1: At the time she was first starting to workshop the show in 2018 and 2019, we were really fresh on that in that Trump era um, Me Too moment. And I think she's like constitutionally averse to doing anything that seems too easy or too cliche that mm. I think for to be a cliche would would be like the worst fate for her. And so. Yeah. It it would just be too simple to 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 make a show about the blowjob that you know played into all of these ideas that people were glomming onto at the time um, about about female sexuality and yeah. and empowerment and I think um, her approach was was it's very subtly um, risqué or, or it's very subtly like daring in the way it approaches you know, female sexuality because there's this one joke where she's attempting to give a blowjob and um, she's having such a hard time with it that she, you know, she's sort of the only way she can get it done is by dissociating. And she mm. imagines herself as like a little girl staring out the window or like watching the TV <laughs> and changing the channel. Yeah, And she, she says, I know this is not, I know that sounds like dissociation and it's not, that's not, that's a taboo way to, to think about fe- have female sexuality, but it worked for me. So, um, <laughs> you know, and, yes. um, I think there's a lot of truth in that.
2: Mm-hmm. This is the thing that I don't get carries. Like I turned on Netflix and then Jacqueline Novak's special was under the stand-up tab, you know, in Netflix. And I was like, I'm not sure that the thing that I'm watching is easily quantifiable as stand-up. Over the past decade or so, we've seen a number of comedians or, or comic actors do these one-person shows, right? Like, Get On Your Knees really blurs that line between stand-up comedy and long-form storytelling. You had Phoebe Waller-Bridge with the original stage version of Fleabag. Um, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette comes into c- comes to mind. Uh, what is the state of comedy? Tell us about the state of comedy and what it says right now. Is it a coincidence that it's happening all the time, happening at this moment when streaming services are where you get Typically, our comedy specials that we're seeing this kind of rise of of one person shows.
1: Yeah, I think I think um, the streaming universe in particular, Netflix, has totally changed what stand up can and and will be. Yeah, um, and I think that uh, you know you can once something has been sort of perfected and automated and al- algorithmically. Optimized as it has been by <laughs> Netflix, yeah. then you start to see like people really intensely trying to subvert that form, and I think that's kind of what we're experiencing now. Although I think Jacqueline's specials is a little bit separate from that; hers mm-hmm. is, hers is. Um, I think it's a a little bit of a piece of theater, a little bit of a piece of performance art, a little bit of long form literary storytelling. Yeah. Um, but with the the one person shows. I think people are are doing everything that they can to kind of differentiate themselves from a sort of like row of thumbnails on a streaming yeah. service and like a one hour exact special like joke or set up punchline, set up punchline um, structure. Like I think you would even notice um, you know over the last 5 to 10 years these comics hiring big name directors and applying yeah. all of these all of these arty kind of um more abstract cinematic filmic um touches to to the 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 stand up special
2: yeah uh, that that reminds me of uh, like the Chris Rock special from a few years ago, the one about his divorce. That was directed yes. by Bo Burnham. I was sort of watching that. I was like, this isn't really like I've seen a billion hours worth of Chris Rock standup special. This doesn't fit into that category. There's something else that is happening here that looks a bit more theatrical, a bit more like a like a like a one man show than it does, and that than it does a normal sort of Chris Rock standup special. And I guess it, in one sense, it gives me hope that Netflix can become a way to broaden our definition or understanding of comedy. Is that is that maybe the takeaway that we can sort of expect Netflix to broaden audiences for these types of shows, you think?
1: I hope so. And I think it's really heartening that at the end of the day – Someone like Jacqueline was allowed to put out a ninety-minute special yeah. as opposed to a one-hour special because I think the data would reveal that a fifty-eight-minute special is always necessarily going to perform better than an hour and thirty-six-minute special <laughs> um, in in terms of the, the the clicks and the the viewing. Yeah. Um, so so I would hope that th- something like this, along with several other other pieces, would. You know, show that it, maybe Netflix is not just just sticking to what the algorithm tells it; it will be successful, and that there is room for for disrupting the form here.
2: I love this. I love everything about this, Carrie. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here, friend.
1: Thank you, Elamine. It's so lovely to talk to you.
2: Carrie Batten recently wrote about the comedian Jacqueline Novak for the New Yorker. By the way, you can watch Jacqueline's new special, "Get on Your Knees," on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. That is it for the podcast today. Hey, remember, you can listen to any episode of the show, anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. If you got a moment, head over to our Instagram. If you missed Friday's show, you can catch Kathleen talking quite passionately on our Instagram. Uh, Kathleen Newman-Burbang about the Barbie snubs. And I think it's a really important conversation to be having with the Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie snubs. Uh, that is uh, our Instagram is at uh, commotioncbc. My name is Alamine Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. I'd love to see you then.